This episode is brought to you by the American Urological Association. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Take Home Messages. My name is Stephen Nakata from Madison, Wisconsin. I'm your president-elect, and I'm here with Dr. David Penson from Vanderbilt University, your new AUA secretary. Thanks for joining us this afternoon for the final plenary session of AUA 2023. The take-home messages from this year's meeting best sum up the important science presented. We'll start a take-home message is basic science, malignant. Uh, Doug Scher, professor of urology, while Cornell Medical College. Dr. Scher. Thank you. And welcome, everybody, and good afternoon. Uh, it's a privilege for me to give the take-home message in the basic science relating to malignancy at, at this year's AUA. I have no disclosures. Okay, I got it. So uh, this year's AUA, we've seen a robust uh, uh, display of basic science. Uh, we've seen advances in genomics, transcriptomics, proteomics, and these all continue to find the, uh, provide the real backbone for clinical care in urologic oncology. Uh, molecular subtyping of urologic malignancies is continued to provide further evidence that precision oncology is here to stay. And we've seen a whole slew of different treatment synergies that are really advancing immunotherapy and combining immunotherapy with various other types of treatments to improve oncological care. In going through the various cancers, I'll focus first on prostate cancer, and there, there have been some themes in some of the abstracts related to basic science. I think we've seen a few abstracts that we'll go through that more accurately utilize PSMA imaging and therapeutics, combining these with some molecular correlates. We've been better able to define some of the molecular subtypes of prostate cancer to improve oncological care. And we've seen a whole slew of enhancing AR-directed therapy by combining them with some molecular therapeutics. And so I, I thought I would focus on a few of the abstracts that I thought to be very interesting relating to these themes. Uh, there was one uh, group at UCLA that looked at improving upon PSMA. And what they found is quite interesting in that PSMA is not an all or none response. And that indeed, based on high or low PSMA expressions, we can better characterize some of the molecular pathways that have been associated with this. As an example, if we look at patients with PSMA who have high expression of PSMA, we see that there's a dynamic relation with androgen receptor activity and treatments, and they've shown that there's increasing markers of genomic in, uh, instability with high PSMA expression, and a significantly downturn in immune content in the tumor microenvironment. So what this group has shown really that PSMA is only the tip of the iceberg, and exploring this further and combining this with some molecular cords can improve our understanding. In this project out of MD Anderson, this was an interesting molecular subtyping project, and they looked at a unique form of prostate cancer called ductal carcinoma of the prostate. And we know that ductal carcinoma is an androgen insensitive prostate cancer, but what we now, what this group has shown, that ductal carcinoma has a very unique genomic and transcriptomic landscape. And in understanding this better, we've been able to find, and this group has shown this, that combining a PARP inhibitor with some of the ARSI therapies has reduced uh, ductal carcinoma viability in organoid model. And I think this is really laying the groundwork for improved therapeutics in these unusual prostate cancers. Uh, this is a group out of UC Davis that looked at some unique HSP70 inhibitors to see if they can improve ARSI therapy. 
and they looked at two HSP70 inhibitors, uh, JG98 and JG231, and found that these can not only suppress the growth of enzalutamide resistant prostate cancer cells, but they can resensitize resistant tumors to enzalutamide therapy. These two HSP inhibitors are uh, suppress ARV7 expression, which is mediated by STUB1, and targeting this access using this HSP modulators is a potential strategy to overcome ARSI resistance. Very interesting project. In turning to kidney cancer, there were several themes in kidney cancer that we saw. Understanding the immune checkpoint inhibition in the treatment of renal cell has been a, a big theme of some of the basic science projects in kidney cancer. What was one in interesting area is looking at cytoreductive nephrectomy and the immune landscape that's impacted upon the timing of cytoreductive nephrectomy. And of course, AI technology has, has, uh, has come on board to urologic oncology as well, and it's helping us better understand and stratify some of the transcriptomic data that we've seen. As an example here, this is from the group at University of Michigan, and they looked at the epithelial to mesenchymal transition. And this is a process by which fully differentiated cells lose their epithelial features and acquire a, a quote, migratory mesenchymal phenotype. And this group found that this phenotype is quite implicated in the immune environment of prostate cancer, of, excuse me, of kidney cancer. In the reductive nephrectomy arm, this is an interesting project, and it, this looked at the timing of cytoreductive nephrectomy and how this impacts the immune landscape that ensues. And they found that there are differences in the pathway enrichments and immune cell populations. Uh, yeah, and, and, and this is a, um, yeah, somehow the slides are getting off kilter here, but in any case, they, they found that you could uh, change the immune landscape based on the timing of cytoreductive nephrectomy. The, um, and they found in particular that the cytoreductive nephrectomy, if, if done in a low tumor burden model, can increase the M1-associated macrophages, as opposed to doing it in a high tumor burden model, this can decrease the M1 tumor-associated macrophages. Uh, in turning to uh, uh, kidney cancer again, yeah, somehow these slides are not focused, I don't know what's happening, but in any case, this is, a, this is actually a project for bladder cancer. For some reason, the slides come up, kidney cancer, but basically this is a, um, this is a, uh, a project by which they're looking at the, uh, yeah, I don't know why these slides are. Okay, we'll, we'll turn to bladder cancer here for a moment, but I, identifying variations in the immune landscapes was one of the themes of bladder cancer, improving detection and profiling techniques and the role of the tumor microbiome in cancer therapy was also quite important. In looking at the microbiome, this is, uh, yeah, this is just an, some evidence that not only uh, the intestinal microbiome is important, but the microbiome of the tumor themselves is quite important. And this is a study that showed that some of the specific bacterial uh, infiltrates of the tumor can implicate therapy. In this case, Pseudomonas is one of the higher uh, bacterial loads that we see. Uh, this was a project looking at um, what's called a catch-and-display liquid biopsy technique, and this group looked at um, detecting these rare and clinically significant extracellular vesicles that are associated in biomarkers in condition medium and patient serum samples, and these can be characterized in very small patient tumor volumes, and this is a potentially very interesting and useful tool for biomarker discovery as it relates to bladder cancer. 
Uh, in looking at the bladder microbiome, we see on the, the graph on the left, we see uh, BCG-responsive patients and BCG-non-responsive patients, and we see, see significant differences in the phylogenetic uh, diversity in the responders versus non-responders, again, leading to the importance of the microbiome as it relates to immune therapy and BCG therapy. Uh, again, we saw this slide earlier, uh, looking at Pseudomonas as a key player in this microbiome aspects. So I think in conclusion, um, scientific discovery remains robust as it relates to urologic oncology. Translational science needs to stay on the forefront of urologic cancer care, and I thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Dr. Scherer. Our next presenter will be giving the take-home messages on kidney cancer. Uh, it will be presented by my friend and colleague, uh, Amy Luckenbaugh, who is Assistant Professor of Urology at uh, Vanderbilt University Medical Center. Dr. Luckenbaugh. Thank you for allowing me to give this talk. I am also finding the mouse, okay. I have uh, no disclosures relevant to this talk. So there were a number of kidney cancer sessions with 120 poster sessions, 72 podiums, 11 video abstracts, a late-breaking abstract, three plenaries, and there were over five courses. And so there was a lot of kidney cancer that was uh, really great research at this meeting. A brief outline and kind of general themes of what I'll be talking about, diagnostic tools, active surveillance, surgical outcomes, surgical planning, neoadjuvant therapy and adjuvant therapy. Uh, so the first very exciting uh, imaging study that was performed um, was the gerontuximab study, which is a monoclonal antibody that targets carbonic anhydrase 9. Um, an open-label phase 3 trial was performed with 300 patients enrolled, and you can see um, this is very specific uh, for clear cell RCC. And this patient here with an indeterminate renal mass, you can see the fused PET, um, and it shows a, a PET-positive mass. Uh, again, that's specific specifically for clear cell. Um, so the sensitivity and specificity thresholds for this study were exceeded um, with three independent readers uh, reading it with a sensitivity of 85.5%, a specificity of 89.5%, and an excellent positive predictive value of 93.4%. And this was for all small renal masses less than four centimeters. Um, it, this is very good at telling us if this is clear cell. However, it is not necessarily good at saying what this is if it was negative. So that is just something to consider. Uh, shifting to a little bit of a biomarker potential, there's no current good blood biomarker for renal cell carcinoma, but CD70 uh, positive EV may be elevated in those with clear cell renal cell carcinoma, and it may actually reflect a response to treatment. In this group from the Mayo Clinic, uh, they evaluated healthy controls compared to those uh, with clear cell after treatment. And what they found was following treatment, the CD positive EV declined um, in most of the patients, 84% of the patients. And so after a surgery, this may be a, a potential predictor of tumor burden, and it may in the future be something that we could use to see who may be serve to most benefit from adjuvant therapy. Shifting to active surveillance, um, so the DISERM registry uh, was established to provide kind of prospective data and looking at the role of active surveillance for small renal masses. And as we know, this has been enrolling since 2009. So their 12-year follow-up data was presented at this meeting. Um, and those they found that those with who were enrolled in active surveillance versus intervention had an equal cancer-specific survival for all intents and purposes at 12 years of follow-up. 
And they also found very important predictors of needing, needing intervention. So those who had a tumor of three centimeters or more at the time of enrollment ended up needing an intervention at a rate of nearly 13 times those who had a tumor less than two centimeters. And so this gives us great data that uh, tumor size is very predictive of potential need, potentially needing intervention for small renal masses. Uh, importantly, a, a number of other studies looked at this as well, and this group from Roswell Park uh, looked at something similar, and again, a uh, tumor greater than three centimeters or three to four centimeters was predictive of needing intervention, and clear cell histology in this group's uh, investigation also showed needing potential for intervention. Overall, of all of the podiums that were presented on this, about 65 to 68% of people um, at at least three years of follow-up had not required an intervention for a renal mass less than two centimeters. So that's something that can aid in counseling our patients. Shifting to uh, partial versus radical nephrectomy, there are a number of plenaries on this, but a, a podium that was covered this as well. Um, they, this compared functional outcomes of those who underwent a partial versus a radical for a complex renal mass defined as a renal score of 10 to 12. Um, those who had partial nephrectomy uh, did have higher post-operative complications, but there was no difference in major complications. And importantly, you can see in blue, um, they had a much better survival and per, uh, from a five-year risk of GFR decline to less than 60 or less than 45. And so attempting a complex partial in the right patients in the right hands may be valuable for future renal function. Uh, the number of podiums and posters on 3D models was astronomical, um, and just to highlight one of them, many of them showed very similar findings, that 3D models uh, can be found to be independent predictors of shorter ischemia time for partials, shorter length of stay, and a lower positive margin rate, and I think 3D models are, are here to stay. Now shifting to immunotherapy. Um, this group, it was a, a basic science-like study in which they gave people nivolumab um, prior to partial or radical nephrectomy, and they looked at the changes that nivolumab causes and in the primary tumor. And it did promote an inflammatory state in the primary tumor and cause changes in circulation. Those who had more inflamed tumors and more inflammatory markers in their tumors responded better to nivolumab, and it did induce a durable inflammatory response with changes in cytokines uh, in the bloodstream after nephrectomy. This, this next group, again, kind of in the immunotherapy line of things, evaluated the use of cytoreductive nephrectomy following primary immunotherapy. And their primary outcomes were complete resection uh, with negative margins and no complications at 30 days. Um, both immunotherapy and immuno and TKI therapy patients were included. And you can see those who underwent immunotherapy experienced a decrease in tumor size, tumor thrombus length, and complexity. And importantly, um, they did have a 67.9% rate of having negative margins and no post-operative complications. Um, and overall, it seems like immunotherapy followed by cytoreductive nephrectomy may potentially be the future. Similarly and importantly, this group looked at complete pathologic response in those undergoing nephrectomy for renal cell carcinoma after immunotherapy. And they found in their study, 9% uh, of patients had a complete response, or T0, in the kidney. Um, those who received more than three cycles of immunotherapy prior to 
uh, nephrectomy had a more more likely to be have a complete response. And at three years of follow-up, those who had T0 on their final pathology had 100% overall survival and progression-free survival. Importantly, uh, patient-reported outcomes and cytoreductive nephrectomy is a pretty uh, dry landscape, and this is new, a new data that shows um, that this questionnaire was designed to specifically address symptoms related to kidney cancer, looking at emotional well-being, and they used this questionnaire to see the impact that cytoreductive nephrectomy has on this. And what they found is that those who underwent cytoreductive nephrectomy significantly worried much less about cancer progression. 44% um, had a meaningful improvement in their quality of life after cytoreductive nephrectomy, and particularly those with poor quality of life out prior to cytoreductive nephrectomy had improvement following. And so this really shows that there are, is potentially a patient-reported outcome benefit to cytoreductive nephrectomy. And uh, lastly, shifting to adjuvant immunotherapy. So we all know about the pembrolizumab approval in this space, um, but there have been some other trials that kind of found uh, equivalent outcomes, uh, the Checkmate trial, Emotion, Keynote, and Prosper. In this, per this study performed a phase three rand uh, review, a systematic review of all phase three randomized studies uh, for adjuvant immunotherapy for RCC. And what they found was there is a slight benefit for adjuvant therapy. However, the people who are most likely to benefit may be those with sarcomatoid features or high grade, as well as positive PDL1 one um, expression. And further analysis of these studies and long-term follow-up is needed. And then finally, along those lines of adjuvant therapy, um, this was an online survey conducted uh, to patients who are a member of the Kidney Cancer Association, and they found that one out of 10 patients of the 1,000 surveyed were offered adjuvant therapy. The majority who were offered it did receive immunotherapy, but interestingly, these patients believed that adjuvant therapy would reduce their risk of recurrence by over 50%. And so that is a deficiency in our counseling. As we know, that is not true, and so very careful counseling about the true benefit and the true risks of adjuvant therapy is warranted. In conclusion, um, gerontuximab will serve as a powerful tool for diagnosing uh, clear cell RCC in the future. Active surveillance is associated with excellent outcomes and nearly two-thirds of patients, especially those with less than a two-centimeter renal mass, may remain on surveillance. 3D modeling is, is here to stay. Uh, cytoreductive nephrectomy in the immunotherapy era is safe and, and may result in prolonged disease-free survival, and I look forward to future studies on that. An adjuvant therapy may not be right for all patients, and grades should definitely be taken to, into account, as well as the side effects and the true benefit as we go forward. Thank you. Thank, thank you very much. Next, to do the take-home messages in bladder cancer, Dr. Jennifer Taylor from the Baylor College of Medicine. Dr. Taylor. Good afternoon. Thank you to the organizers, and thank you very much to my colleagues who assisted me in screening this large volume of information and data. Uh, around the meeting over the last five days, there were 85 podium abstracts, 160 poster abstracts, seven late-breaking abstracts, three hours of content on Saturday at the SBUR and SUO meetings, two hours within the plenary, uh, 10 courses covering bladder cancer, either completely or partially, and four hours during the Bladder Cancer Forum yesterday by the IBCN. And so the themes across these few days were understanding the disease better, understanding our patients better, 
treating the disease smarter in many categories, looking at either better patient outcomes, including patient reported outcomes, and better cancer outcomes, such as recurrence and survival. But uh, it, we should not start the discussion of the posters without highlighting the new guidelines that came out in urothelial cancer for upper tract urothelial cancer. This was discussed in a plenary session by Dr. Coleman, and these are very, very useful. There are 36 principles covering staging, principles of diagnostics, standardized reporting, testing, including for Lynch syndrome, and treatment, which may depend on some of the testing that's been done to help guide targeted treatment. When we talk about urothelial cancer, the many posters and podiums cover genomic and genetic understanding. I'll highlight a few here in non-muscle invasive first. Anaragonol in this moderated poster looked at carcinoma in situ and uh, non-muscle invasive high-grade disease with 32 samples in, among 24 patients. And they found that on sequencing, there were largely luminal and class II subtypes and with the gene signatures identified, there were several druggable targets also seen. They did see high mutational burden, particularly in carcinoma in situ, and these were the two most frequently mutated genes which could identify next step targets. Chu et al. Uh, also looked in high-grade T1, and they examined patients that underwent BCG initially and a cohort of patients that underwent early cystectomy. Certainly the early cystectomy group had a selection bias, but that pointed towards those being higher risk by, uh, by uh, provider selection. And physicians identified those as very high risk as having high grade T1 and CIS, and then at least one of deep lamina propria invasion, lymphovascular invasion, multifocal disease, variant histology, prostatic urethral involvement, or larger tumor size. But ultimately, there was no difference in cancer-specific survival between those who underwent an immediate cystectomy and those who had at least one round of some type of intravesical treatment with BCG. Uh, interestingly, those who were in the very high-risk category of high-grade T1 were much more like high-grade T2 urothelial cancer genomically, which may indicate that we have detected them before they became invasive, but they were going to be bad actors regardless. And so these higher-risk selection criteria may help you continue to stratify who you offer early cystectomy to. Within muscle invasive, I highlighted one here in patients that underwent neoadjuvant chemotherapy, and then back to non-muscle invasive, some very interesting low-grade um, specimens. In this podium, the group looked at um, proteomic clustering among muscle invasive patients who received neoadjuvant chemo, and they did find several clusters identified in the pre-chemotherapy specimens. Ultimately, there were multiple, there were several druggable targets that were um, seen, and these were enriched in the neoadjuvant chemo-resistant tumors. In this uh, smaller study, there were uh, a number of specimens that were predominantly low-grade TA, and they did sequencing on these from paraffin-embedded tumors as well as blood, and they found that there was a high mutational burden and two mutations in TERT gene and EGFR that were predictive of early recurrence in lower risk non-muscle invasive disease. It also uh, was not in the poster presentations, but very important work that was summarized in the SBUR session by Dr. Meeks. In patients who were treated on neoadjuvant 
therapy trials with um, immune checkpoint inhibitors, response correlated with the subtypes that were identified through a, a mountain of work with many investigators. Then in those who had response, uh, the, the um, subtypes correlated with the recurrence and the recurrence-free survival. Um, this also held true in adjuvant treatment with immune checkpoint inhibitors. And there was some mutation profiling work that showed response-associated signatures as well. And this was published within the last week in Nature Communications uh, and really is an amazing amount of work that's come out of several years, many years of work in uh, bladder cancer that really is highlighting how far we have come in being able to understand cancer, this disease process, and how to treat it. Another area of great um, work has been in the salvage treatment in non-Muslim invasive bladder cancer, particularly BCG-unresponsive disease. And here are several that I will highlight on the next couple of slides. CORE-001 was a phase two single-arm study with 35 patients who all had CIS and several of which with papillary disease in addition. This was a phase three um, looking at monotherapy and combination therapy. Um, they combined this agent with pembrolizumab, and all of these patients were BCG unresponsive, as I said, but the overall complete response rate was 85%, and this was durable to 12 months among 68% of the patients. The additional uh, phase three results are, are forthcoming or um, the studies are being designed as we speak. Sunrise is another, um, is another study looking at an intravesical agent in co combination with siltrimolab. So, and uh, here, Dr. Danishman reported in a late-breaking abstract the results among 43 patients, only in the monotherapy arm. So here, uh, on the left hand of the bar, the patients received the pretzel TAR 200, and in the right hand bar, they received checkpoint inhibitor siltrimolab. Uh, and there was a, a 65 to 70 percent of the patients in the study had CIS alone, and the others had CIS plus papillary disease. Um, there was an amazing response in the TAR 200 arm of 72 percent, uh, and in the monotherapy arm, there was 38 percent with siltrelumab, and this was in line with other checkpoint inhibitors for non-Muslim invasive disease. The other combination arms have not yet been reported, but we're looking forward to that data as well as this matures. Next, uh, Dr. Kulkarni reported on a really very interesting photodynamic therapy looking at intravesical installation of a Ruvidar agent and then laser activation. This is a primary treatment done in the operating room once under anesthesia and then maintenance at 180 days among those who were responders in the initial arm. They so far reported out for 57 patients with a planned enrollment of 125 patients and there were uh, 28, 23 out of 28 patients, 82% with a durable complete response with the caveat of short follow-up time. But this is a very promising therapy here. Um, another study looked at all BCG unresponsive patients over 20 years in the MD Anderson experience. Um, and I'm sorry, in the Memorial Sloan Kettering experience. And there were almost 120 patients who underwent cystectomy or bladder sparing treatment. In the bladder sparing treatment, they could have received BCG, BCG plus interferon, or gemcitabine plus docetaxel. 
And ultimately, there was no difference in overall survival or cancer-specific survival for early cystectomy versus giving the patients at least one try with another round of salvage treatment, which can at least help us reassure the patients that they're not doing harm by trying something in interim before pressing on to cystectomy. And um, lastly, there were a lot of reports in muscle invasive disease and advanced disease. I'll just highlight a few that looked at some perioperative strategies to have better outcomes, as well as how to risk stratify with um, some, additional, some additional markers, and then adjuvant therapy with a late-breaking abstract in the Checkmate study. In terms of perioperative strategies that can help, these were 160 patients randomized to four different strategies for regional anesthesia, including epidural, rectus sheath blocks, and infiltration of anesthetic at the uh, incision sites. And they ultimately observed there was the shortest hospital stay with the uh, rectus sheath blocks, and the epidural delivered lowest pain scores, but did not achieve the lowest hospital stay, potentially for uh, the extra or the decreased ambulation postoperatively. It was interesting being a nice randomized trial in surgical patients. Another study which you can take a look at looked at the association between frailty and low testosterone and uh, lower uh, co or higher complications with TRBT among those who had low testosterone. And then Dr. Williams looked at VA data and showed the first um, kind of clear understanding of Agent Orange exposure and risk of bladder cancer. Finally, Dr. Malowski uh, reported on three years median follow-up for Checkmate 274. And in this group, there were 709 patients randomized to nivolumab versus placebo. And here, uh, it was great to see a sustained, per, um, sustained response rate and sustained control of recurrence. The disease-free survival benefit was independent of PDL1 status, but you can see that among those who are PDL1 expressing, the hazard ratio was even lower. And then uh, this, this treatment for one year continues to maintain freedom from local recurrence and distant metastasis out to three years in the report given this weekend. So I thank you for your time, and please look through the rest that's out there that I could not cover. Thank you, Dr. Taylor. Uh, our next presentation will be on the take-home messages for prostate cancer. It'll be delivered by Dr. Sam Washington, Assistant Professor at the University of California, San Francisco. Dr. Washington. Uh, thanks, everyone, for the opportunity and privilege to try to summarize all of prostate cancer in 10 minutes. Uh, we'll see what we can do. I have no disclosures, but I would like to highlight the early detection of prostate cancer guidelines that recently came out, as well as highlight studies, controversies, debates in these kind of key domains focused on optimizing evaluation and treatment of prostate cancer. Uh, first, the early detection of prostate cancer guidelines. I'd like to go over just some key findings, observations. Uh, in terms of clear guidelines and algorithms that we have now for screening, uh, with these guidelines, we have uh, more clear indications of when we should start screening based on average risk or increased risk, as well as screening intervals that may best benefit the patient uh, as we monitor kind of a risk-benefit ratio for those patients moving forward. Now, for those who are undergoing an initial prostate biopsy, using an MRI has been discussed in many different studies uh, presented during this conference uh, is beneficial. And also, please consider the use of a pre-biopsy adjuvant adjunctive, excuse me, urine or serum marker for further risk stratification. 
When MRI is used, uh, the recommendation is to continue with targeted biopsy based on the MRI or imaging findings, as well as uh, consider doing a systematic biopsy at the same time. If no lesion is present, continue with a systematic biopsy. And they highlight during the guidelines, or within the guidelines, uh, obtaining at least two cores per target um, during that biopsy. Now, for those who have a negative initial biopsy, the recommendation is against discontinuation based on that negative biopsy or PSA threshold alone, but continue to uh, reevaluate every two to four years uh, for those who opt for continued screening. And that there are additional risk assessment tools, but we should use those that incorporate the potential negative, or excuse me, potential protective effect of a negative biopsy. Um, to further risk stratify our patients and discuss uh, continued utilization of MRI and screening and biopsy moving forward for these patients. Now, uh, under the overarching theme of optimizing evaluation and treatment, there were several different uh, heated debates happening uh, in the prostate cancer space uh, during this uh, session. Now, transperineal versus transrectal, there was a lot of discussion of which is better, um, discussing the perceived strengths of transperineal biopsy in terms of detection, less infection, as well as questioning detecting what um, and postoperative side effects and cost. But thankfully, we've moved beyond observation and there's active evaluation, very rigorous in several different studies outlined here, um, and continued innovation and further investigation to move us forward to understand which may be better in which context and how we could implement this, particularly within the United States. Now, I have to mention the debate of to rename or not to rename Gleason 6 that happened with a lot of healthy discussion of what we should be doing moving forward. Here I've listed some of the arguments for and against renaming, and I guarantee that the debate will continue both in person and on Twitter after this presentation. Uh, moving forward, there are several studies in multiple uh, projects and presentations discussing how genetic testing would be integrated into the real-world practice. I'd like to highlight here uh, just one, looking at uh, data from the PROCLAIM study in which they identified patients, 50% of whom met uh, NCCN guidelines for germline genetic testing, and 50% that did not. Um, all were tested and grouped based on findings, one or more positive finding, uh, variants of uncertain significance, or none and clinical outcomes were reported within 60 to 90 days of receiving uh, the results. Uh, within this cohort, for those who tested positive, it was found that genetic testing did result in significantly more recommendations for treatment, follow-up, and counseling. We saw that in terms of treatment recommendations specifically, those were made in roughly 18% of positive patients, but nearly three-fourths of all patients did have increased uh, noted uh, recommendations in terms of follow-up or recommendations for counseling and testing of family members based on that positive finding. So it's interesting to know how this has continued to impact care for patients, including those who may not necessarily meet NCCN testing guidelines up front. Moving on to PSMA PET, we've noticed that this has been integrated in several different domains in the prostate cancer evaluation and treatment pathway. Um, it is currently considered as an alternative to conventional imaging. We know it has changed practice in roughly 25% of patients diagnosed with unfavorable or intermediate or high-risk disease. And there was further discussion during this time of thresholds to use based on primary treatment. Uh, optimal threshold for uh, PSMA use of 0.2 for those after radical prostatectomy, and look at PSA kinetics for those uh, who have previously undergone radiation. Now, I would like to highlight the EMBARC study, phase three randomized trial of enzalutamide or placebo plus luprolide and enzalutamide monotherapy in high-risk biochemically recurrent prostate cancer patients. Here I have the patient uh, population 
those who have a screening PSA greater than one, PSA density of less than six months, no evidence of metastatic disease on imaging, um, and prior hormonal therapy greater or equal to nine months prior to randomization. These three groups were randomized in a one-to-one-to-one -to -one -to -one pattern of enzalutamide plus luprolide combination, uh, placebo plus luprolide versus enzalutamide monotherapy, uh, with the primary endpoints of metastatic-free survival in the combination versus luprolide alone, uh, and secondary endpoints of METS-free survival in those with luprolide uh, versus enzalutamide monotherapy, time to PSA progression, and time to uh, secondary agent use. They found within this study a statistically and clinically significant uh, difference uh, in the METS-free survival for combination therapy compared to luprolide alone. Similarly, findings in terms of secondary key endpoints for enzalutamide monotherapy compared to luprolide alone and enzalutamide uh, monotherapy luprolide alone for both time to PSA progression as well as time to use of first antineoplastic therapy. Now, overall, the authors note that combination therapy was, again, statistically and clinically significant improvement in MES-free survival. In addition, monotherapy had similar findings, but also in the domains of time to PSA progression as well as time to new antineoplastic therapy without any new safety signals observed uh, while undergoing these treatments. Now, given these advances, I would like to highlight that as we proceed with more personalized and improved care, there still are populations that need to uh, improve care just to the standard that we're receiving right now. So there are several discussions, plenaries, podiums, focused on how we can optimize care in groups um, that are at great risk. Uh, there are discussions about how the nomograms may need further calibration and risk stratification in populations that were not uh, initially included in several of these studies, questions around treatment screening and whether it should be the same for white counterparts. Uh, there were investigations into the guidelines themselves and how often demographics were reported in the data being presented and integrated into guidelines and where that data came from. All of these questions uh, pointing at the need for further optimization in specific groups. Uh, this includes our veterans, um, in which further investigation looking at Agent Orange showed uh, a specific uh, association with alterations both in terms of somatic tumor as well as alterations in androgen receptors. And we see that in terms of step forwards in these populations that shared decision making is prevalent in all groups and a benefit for all. And there should be uh, further ways to integrate this into practice and improve care for everyone. Thank you for your time.